Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing with The Cruise of the Hippocampus by Alfred Loomis and we're on chapter 5. Chapter 5. We Touch Foreign Soil. Everyone who has cruised extensively is aware that itineraries are made only to be altered and that promises to gain or leave a port at any stated time are of the substance of gossamer. Knowing this, I yet ventured to predict in print that the run of the 28-foot hippocampus from New York to Panama would commence with a few rapid tacks down the east coast of the United States, continue with a meteoric flight through the West Indies, and conclude with a carefree sail across the Caribbean. Had I been crocious and able to expend untold sums in gasoline, we might have carried out this program, subject, of course, to the vagaries of all mechanical contraptions. But, being more comparable to a certain domestic fowl that was wont to scratch gravel in the portico of a late lamented job, I am dependent upon the whims of the wind, and find that my predictions are less than worthless. We are now eight weeks from New York, only 90 miles out of the shadow of the Stars and Stripes. For several weeks, we hippocampi were given to dating events from the night of the big wind off the Delaware Capes. Other circumstances shrank into insignificance by comparison with the occasion on which Joe Chambers, then known as Al, revealed his skill as a yachtsman extraordinaire, and Joe Squibb, alias Paul, won the right to his designation of sea-going gadget. We endured other storms of wind and rain, wore our oilskins threadbare and became inured to biting spray, but these supplementary affairs were unworthy of mention to the old and new friends we met en route. Then came the night at Mayport, Florida, which gave us a new topic of conversation. The storm is forgotten, except that we remark parenthetically the hippocampus has proved her seaworthiness, and we reckon all our good fortune and bad luck from the night of the avalanche. We are lucky, indeed, to be alive to tell about it, but unlucky in being a bad two weeks behind schedule because of it. For by lying a week in Jacksonville to undergo repairs, we lost the fine northeast wind that would have blown us in its jig time to Miami. When, on the morning of Sunday, June the 12th, we were finally ready to shove off, we delayed yet another hour to witness the public and exceedingly efficacious baptism of a band of men in the waters of St. John's. These devout Baptists, indifferent alike to the clicking cameras of the white folks and the crude oil which floats on the surface of the river, underwent their services near the mouth of a sanctimonious old sewer to westward of the hippocampus, chanting continuously a stirring baptismal hymn. So captivating were both refrain and music that the two Joes, waiting impatiently to cast off our mooring lines, succumbed to their lure, and now we weigh anchor and haul halyards to the newest of sea shanties. Whosoever will, let him come, let him come and drink the river of life. So, humming and whistling to memorise the air, we let go, waved goodbye to my old shipmate Donahue, and stood down the river of St. John's. Past the scene of the avalanche we went, and through the jetties for which the invading rock had been intended. And when we were outside and found the day fair and the breeze unfavourable, we thought it as good a time as any to photograph the hippocampus under sail. The crew brought the yawl into stays, and I jumped, camera in hand, into our rejuvenated dink, 
and for the first time gained an outboard view of the ship in action. She is every inch a ship, viewed from any angle, and I must say that I am proud to be one of three who are pointing her inquiring nose into new harbours and along strange waterways. Except for the short time that she was sailing before the eye of the camera on that day, she had little opportunity to run her gait, for the wind was dead against us. During the evening and night, we beat north by east and reached south-southwest, the closest we would come to our south-easterly course, and in so doing, we began a monotonous tacking contest that lasted for six whole days. The wind veered from east to southwest and back again, its shifts usually catching us in poor position with respect to the beach to take advantage of them. And not for five days and 23 hours of the sixth day did we sail with the wind abaft the beam. This is the discouraging part of sailing, but to make it worse, we were frequently becalmed and at times were subject to the northward set of the Gulf Stream along the Florida coast. Contrary winds and calms we endured with some equanimity, the weather being otherwise perfect. But when on the morning of the third day out of Jacksonville, we found ourselves somewhere off Cape Canaveral and the cobalt blue of the water told us that we were in the full strength of the stream, we lost our ample fund of patience and started the Palmer motor. Leaving all sail set to steady us in the seaway and heading as close to the southwest wind as we could without luffing, we soon picked up Hetzel Shoal Boy on our port bow and then lowered the mainsail and left the smaller sails flapping as we steered to pass it close aboard. In time, the breeze died away and we decided to continue past the cape and keep the motor running until we had another slant of wind. By now, we had had enough experience with the weather to forecast with some accuracy the direction of the wind and we were offshore when a south-easterly breeze sprang up and sent us under sail alone on a long tack for the beach. Consequent upon some manoeuvring, a southwesterly sent us out to Bethel Shoal Boy and on the morning of the next day delivered us into the good graces of another easterly. By these tactics and a judicious use of the motor to give us an offing now and again, we spent the day. But that night the wind completely forsook us and we ran all night under power, arriving off Palm Beach at 11 in the morning of Friday. Here the opportunity presented to step ashore and stretch our legs and to replenish our store of matches and cigarettes. So in 15 feet of water, we anchored a hundred yards or so northeast of the pier, and I swam ashore accompanied by Al in the wherry. Arrived on the beach, we found it so hot to our bare feet that we gladly accepted a loan of two bicycles offered at us by some workmen who said that they would take the yawl as security for their safe return, and we were soon paddling down the deserted streets of Florida's winter capital. For those who have seen it in February, a glare of colour and the essence of the continent's fashion, you'll be grieved to know that in summer Palm Beach boasts but one open establishment besides the post office. Sun-dried lawns or boarded-up hotels met our glance on every side, and Al and I thought almost that we had come to an abandoned village, until, in the only store, we bought some soda pop and learned that Palm Beach prices prevail. Thus, rest assured, we mailed our postcards, bought our smoking material and returned by wheel and rowboat to the yawl. Paul, tending ship and swimming overside in our absence, had decided that a protracted view of the barn-like sides of the breakers was sightseeing enough for him. So we weighed anchor and under sail started to annihilate the remaining 60 miles to Miami. Here we had come to that stretch of Florida's mainland along which the Gulf Stream cuts the closest 
and to avoid its current, we ran almost within tossing distance of the beach. Al, standing the first watch that night, saw home bodies reading in the glow of their study lamps and vainly envied the speed of motor cars flitting along the coastal road between Hillsborough Inlet and the beach. But the setting moon took from him the ability to gauge our distance from the beach and morning found us fog-bound, safely off soundings. The fog, deliberately diluted with pungent smoke from some distant fire in the Everglades, burned off at six o'clock and the increased visibility revealed us bearing down on Biscayne Boy, north of the entrance to Miami. For several hours, we had been running by motor over a sea so calm that our booms, suspended from idle sails, scarcely left their amidship position. But now, a fair wind came into life and for the last five miles of our six days run, we sailed with free sheets. Entering the government cut under power alone, we chugged up the new dredged channel to an oil wharf and there acquired misinformation that initiated us into the innermost circles of Florida cruisers. Within 300 yards of Biscayne Bay Yacht Club, we grounded in four and a half feet of water. But mussels, motors and kedge anchors were especially fashioned for cruising in Florida's inland waterways. Before long, we were afloat and riding to anchor. Miami has changed miraculously since last I saw it eight years ago, but the hospitality of my old friends, Mr. and Mrs. Hugh Matheson, remains the same, kind and open-hearted. Why think of going on, they urged during an informal inspection of Hippocampus, when there is no more wind than there has been. Come to Coconut Grove and rest a while. So we locked up the little yawl, and for three days knew the luxury of good company, real food, cool sheets and fresh water in bathtub quantities. Then, although there was little wind, we refused heroically to impose further on our hosts, and gladdened by a small cargo of Matheson limes, set sail for Key West. We set sail, but hardly had we cleared the government cut when we saw bearing down on us the knife-like prow of USS Eagle 39. She is one of those amazing wartime products of Ford car genealogy, all tin and angles, and as we had inspected her at the mooring at Jacksonville, we recognised her from afar and knew that her destination was Key West. So was ours. What more fair than that we proceed together? So, although we were out of signal distance, we tacked twice, thereby attracting the attention of her quartermaster, and with my ex-service semaphore flags, I sent this unpresumptuous message. To Captain Strum, will you tow us to Key West? By way of answer, the Eagle boat changed her course, the better to intercept us, and presently we received a request to repeat our message. That done, we were ordered within hail, and when, our motor now propelling us, we came within speaking distance, we learned to our immeasurable sorrow that Eagle 39 was in bad straits and could not give us a tow. Captain Strum added, through his megaphone, we have been four days coming from Jacksonville, and there is a tug standing by to tow us in the event of another breakdown. The mention of a tug gave us new hope, and thanking the captain for his honest regret at his inability to tow us, we squared off in the direction of the tug and repeated our first message. This time the answer came as a wave of the hand and a long surveillance of us through a spyglass. To forestall a possible negative reply, I added the pleading words, We are the Yawl Hippocampus, bound for Panama and we have been meeting headwinds all the way. There came another wave of the hand, the clang of a bell in the engine room, a stir of activity on the tug's fantail, and, well, 
It seems inconceivable to this day that in three minutes we were towing securely at the end of a four-inch line. We looked at one another in amazement and someone voiced the thought of all of us. Did you ever see such nerve asking a Navy tug for a tow and getting away with it? None of us had, but Chambers and I thanked Fortune for our training in the sub-chasers where the bold broke even with the game and only the downright brazen got where they thought was due them. The knowledge that the acceptance of a tow line is considered ignominious by the yachting fraternity troubled us not at all. We congratulated ourselves on our good luck, hoped fervently that the eagle boat would not break down, and for the first time on our cruise, prayed that the wind would die away and stay dead until we had reached Key West. No prayer more certain of fulfilment could be uttered in June along the Florida coast, and all day and until four the following morning, we swung at six or seven knots over a calm, limpid sea. Counting the lights as we put them behind us, Fowey Rocks, Carisfort Reef and Alligator Reef, we at length sighted Sombrero Key and knew that in another three hours we would be past the zone of the three-knot northward current. Al had the watch when at 3.30 he called down the hatch, Oh boys, the eagle has let go a rocket. Sleepy as Paul and I were, we knew what that meant and we clambered regretfully to the topside, ready to cast off our tow line and hoist sail. Megaphoned orders came almost immediately from the tug and in a few minutes we were on our way again. But Sombrero Key was nearly a beam. The worst of the current was behind us, and what was more to the point, a fair breeze from the northeast had come to our relief. Until two hours after daylight, the wind held, and we kept abreast of the tug, laboriously towing the eagle boat. But then we fell astern, and in time found it expedient to start the motor and speed our slow progress. We caught up with the naval vessels again as they entered Key West, and, politely standing by to give them access to the old submarine basin, followed them in and made fast to a wharf. A policeman promptly informed us that it was customary to secure permission before entering the Navy Yard, but on Al's hopeful assurance that permission would soon be forthcoming, we were allowed to remain where we were. Al, who knows the Yard and some of its personnel from wartime days, scouted around and in short order we were invited by the Commandant himself to select our berth and stay as long as we liked. Hence, we naturally gravitated to the side of a submarine chaser, the 190, and there made ourselves comfortable. Our four days in Key West were compounded of heat, thunderstorms, and Navy hospitality. We were invited to supper one evening in the wardroom of Eagle 39, where we ate good food and swapped experiences, and by the yard officials we were tendered the privilege of buying stores and gasoline at cost prices, a representative of the press visited us aboard and was responsible in the Key West Citizen for the startling news that one of our crew, Paul Squibb, would re-enlist in the Navy following his cruise in the hippocampus. This was good journalism, being true except in the minor particular that the one of us who did improve his stay at Key West by re-enrolling in the reserve was one Lieutenant J.A. Chambers. Paul, who served in the artillery, still stands by his guns. Pleasant and profitable though our stay was in the southernmost and least American city of the United States, the terrific heat would have driven us away quickly if heat alone could have filled our sails. Finally, on Sunday, June 26th, we awoke to a breeze that promised business, and with our goodbyes and thanks expressed, we were soon underway and headed for Sand Key via the Rock Key Channel. 
watching the colour of the water to get a foretaste of the eyesight navigation that awaits us, we threaded our way around and over a coral reef or two, and in two hours we're in the Gulf Stream southward bound for Havana. We feel a little proud of the landfall we made in entering our first foreign port. The currents in the turbulent 90 miles of blue water separating the island republic of Cuba from her godparent are numerous and swift, and it is not unusual for vessels with greater speed and better navigational equipment than ours to err a matter of 5 or 10 miles in sighting Morro Castle. Yet we, aided by luck and current information gained at Key West, ran our courses for 18 hours and in the 19th found ourselves in danger of being run down by the Key West Havana ferry Parrot, so closely did her course parallel our own. Daylight came before we sighted O'Donnell Light, but in another six hours we sidled under the castle's ancient walls buffeted by flaws of wind from the east. Presenting to the medical officer the clean bill of health which we had obtained from the Cuban consul at Key West, we were informed that we were free to land and make ourselves at home, but that since we had not been fumigated, we must anchor in the bay. So we cast off from the port officer's dock, passed over the historic spot where the USS Maine was sunk, and after some searching for a likely anchorage, let go near the utilitarian but picturesque Manchina stock. It's now time for me to ask the reader to guess what we did immediately after setting foot on foreign soil for the first time in many many months. Perhaps, though, I should save him the trouble of guessing. We first telephoned to some friends of Chambers's, and then inquired our way to the post office, a huge building converted from an historic Catholic church. Then, finding that for the first time in the course of our travels we really were ahead of the mail, we walked to O'Reilly Street, named for a Cuban patriot, and in an American shop left some films for development. Dodging the terrible Fordingos, as Cubans term the familiar Ford, which all decked out in gorgeous upholstery, taxis in great numbers along Havana's congested thoroughfares, we next strolled about looking for a restaurant. When we had found one that seemed commensurate both with our fastidiousness and the leanness of our pocketbooks, we entered, sat down before a clean white tablecloth, and ordered a meal which included Spanish omelette and an ice cream flavoured with delicious tropical fruit. All of this, which is long-winded in the telling but was longer in the happening, we did before we ordered a round of daiquiris. A daiquiri, be it known, comes to the table in a cool, dewy glass of the type used at home in the ancient, unregenerate heyday of the cocktail. In colour it may be a delicate shade of green or it may be a hue of claret, but it contains no such vinous admixture, being composed of lime, sugar and the finest Bacardi rum. It was my treat, in expiation of the old sin of making an atrocious landfall at Charleston, South Carolina, and we drank to happy days. Were I a doctor, I would universally prescribe daiquiris for parched throats and arid dispositions. Feeling much refreshed by the ice cream, we returned aboard to make up arrears in correspondence, and in the evening dragged aching feet unused to the confinement of shoe leather down Havana's famous Prado to the Malathon. There on the seawall we watched the slowly revolving beam of the O'Donnell lighthouse on Morro Castle, or looked westward over the smooth silent sea which we are to traverse in rounding the western end of Cuba. Next day, as guest of a hospitable American resident in Havana, we motored to the Playa Mariano, 
where, near the anchored fleet of the flourishing Havana Yacht Club, we swam without fear of molestation by the sharks, and between dips more firmly cemented our friendship with Bacardi. Chambers, glancing over the sonder boats, hauled out or anchored off the Yacht Club's wharf, saw something familiar in their lines and later learned that among them are the old marblehead racers, Sprig, Ellen, Vim and Harpoon. After dark, we played hosts aboard. Paul served a delectable supper of fried bananas and frankfurters, washed down by temperance draughts of the juice of limes from the Matheson groves. And now, having viewed the more accessible sites of Havana and employed the better part of another day securing the health papers necessary for clearance, we are ready to penetrate still further into the unknown. We would stay longer in the picturesque capital, exploring its fortresses, admiring its parks and the shrub-embroidered streets of its suburbs, and basking in the quaint beauty of its narrow streets and sun-baked buildings. But the West Indies lie before us, and Panama is a long 600-mile jump from Jamaica. Moreover, the July standby season of the hurricane is upon us, and there is a certain need for haste. So, tomorrow... With the first daily breath of the northeast trades, we are off for the Isle of Pines. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.